Well, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah. That's where we'll be studying again today. And thank you so much for coming. I'm seeing some of the faces I've seen the last few weeks. Some of them are new. I've got my crew here today. This is the first they've been in 16 weeks. I keep writing on my notes which week this is since things changed. And uh, I found it particularly helpful to read over something that David mentioned in that passage of being at your wit's end. I think some of us might feel like we live there uh, here lately. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's by our own fault that we've done something wrong. Uh, Much of this is well beyond our control. And... uh, Again, I want to commend you for your, your faithfulness to attend, whether that's in this room or uh, wherever you are tuning in over the live stream. Uh, this is not the same. Even to be in this room, it doesn't feel the same. It will not feel the same until we're all back together again, and that's by the Lord's appointment. So until then, we continue to be faithful in the small things. He'll bring back the big things in His timing. And uh, we faithfully, piece by piece, week by week, um, learn what we can, doing the best with what we've got. And today is no different. We pick up where we left off last week. And uh, we, can, we complete the first chapter. And uh, as far as the book of Jonah goes, there's four chapters. It's a short book. But most of the things that we're familiar with about this little book are in the first chapter. So if there's any new territory in the book, that begins next week. Um, We're taking our time through this, and in the fall we'll get back in our study with John. But let me read to you our, our portion for today. We'll ask the Lord for His help to understand and obey it. We'll go piece by piece and make notes along the way. But this is verse 11 Jonah chapter 1, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be quieted down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, these men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, And the sea ceased from its raging, and the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you. Again, on this your day, gathered together where we are to understand and obey your word, we count it a privilege. Lord, speak to us. Use the simplistic, the study of your word to change our lives, to look more like you, less like ourselves. 
Lord, we ask that you give us encouragement through this. Lord, may we be found faithful. May we be found useful. Lord, may we not be like this messenger of yours who was neither. Lord, may we learn from it. And may your example, you yourself came to this earth to bear your own penalty. May that be our motivation. To be whatever you need us to be, whenever you need us to be it. In order for you to be glorified and your will be complete. Thank you for our time together and for a passage in Jonah. We ask all this expectantly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the sailors find themselves in a predicament, and this more so than the predicament that they found when the sea began to strengthen against them. And it seems that though their problem has deepened and thickened as the plot has unfolded, at this point, even though that they know they're in trouble and they have cast lots and they've determined whose fault it is, All that they know about Jonah's God, they only know from Jonah himself, which puts them in a position really of a certain amount of of blindness. It's, It's not like they can pull out their phone and Google the God of the Hebrews and figure out what situation they're in. They're, they're, they're stuck with the only information they can obtain is through the mouth of the one that they've now determined uh, to be at fault with all this. So because they don't know how to appease the God that they're sure Jonah has angered, they're left with asking the one who angered this God for suggestions as to what to do to appease that God. I don't know if you've thought your way through that point of view, but that's the place they find themselves. In other words, or put another way, only Jonah can guide them from this point on. Their last words from our last installment in this study was, What is this that you have done? And we we studied then that that's not necessarily a question they asked to obtain information. That was a a statement with an exclamation point as much as a question mark of of an appalling gasp. How could you have done this to run away from your God and get us in the place where we, we are? Now they're asking, what shall we do to you that the sea may be quiet? So what they've been able to determine from what Jonah has said, is that they, they're not really dealing with a notorious criminal. This, this isn't the FBI's most wanted. This isn't an escapee from a maximum uh, security prison. And on the other hand, it's not, it's not really a, 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 a man who has ignorantly trespassed some will of a specific God and he's got himself in trouble and he didn't mean to. What they have determined, what Jonah's confessed, they're they're dealing with a God and it's still a little G as far as they're concerned, but one of the gods is angry with this guy who's actually his messenger who's been disobedient. So in their understanding, this is bad. 
we've got this God's own runaway. He works for him. And all the while, the record tells us, the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So as they're asking this question, what are we supposed to do with you? The situation is escalating. So, verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. The sea will be quiet for you. I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So it's very specific in the you and the me, and I'm at fault, but you're the ones paying for it. And commentators, I really enjoy the fact that when I've got my stack of books studying to rightly divide the word of truth, um, it's not very comforting to me when, when I can divide the commentaries in stacks of where the commentators are disagreeing on what we've got here. It doesn't make this job easy. It might make it more interesting, but they debate this point here as to whether what Jonah has just said in verse 12 demonstrates selflessness, where he's saying, okay, I've assessed the situation. It looks like it's me or you. So rather than you all die, just toss me overboard and I'll die so you don't have to. Very noble sounding thing. Selflessness. Is that what we've got here? Or is it stubbornness where he's basically saying, okay, this isn't going to end well for me. So uh, why don't you just throw me over? I'd rather die than repent, start over, confess. And though the commentators give basically a punch list of why they think one option is better than the other. I'm going with the second option. And the point is we can't know. The, the storyteller, the narrator, doesn't tell us the internal motivation of Jonah's heart for what he said here. But option two, that he's just rather be dead than confess, syncs up quite well with what we're going to see in chapter 4 where after Nineveh has been spared and the destruction has been avoided and he's sitting there in the hot sun watching the, the city on the, the horizon waiting for its destruction, doesn't get it and he's mad, so he tells the Lord, if you're not going to kill them, you might as well kill me. That kind of sounds like the same attitude. That and uh, there's some... Somewhat of a study picking up on the catch word that, that Jonah uses here. Hurl me into the sea. And it's interesting. This is the first. If you like counting up things and making notes. There are three threes in this passage. You see three things or, or the point of a, of a third. And this is the first. This is the third use of the word hurl. Uh, First, God hurled the storm onto the sea. Then the sailors hurled the cargo into the ocean. Now Jonah says, hurl me into the ocean. I've used that word hurl out on the ocean, but it referred to something totally different. (laughs) And I don't know if these men are at that point either. It might have been, well, more than just three uses of the word for this. But it seems like he's playing into the the story as it's unfolding here the natural thing for you to do now is just to do with me what's been done with the storm and with the cargo if you're not going to kill them kill me so it's kind of hard to tell but 
Add this to the option too as well. If Jonah's still maintaining his bad attitude here, here's what we're hearing from the story and here's what we're not hearing from the story. And this we don't have to speculate on. This is what's right here in black and white. So far, we've heard not one word of prayer from Jonah. So far, we've heard no confession of guilt before God. He seems to be acknowledging his fault in the storm with these men, but not to God. There's no pleading that he should be spared and the rest should be saved. There's no asking for God's will. You know, they're saying, what should we do? He could say, well, let me ask the Lord and we'll find out. There's not even a promise for him to do better next time. Which, uh, I mean, we start out with that as, as children. We see none of this. The only thing we do hear out of Jonah is that he would like to be dead. And we're going to hear that in chapter 4 as well. That's twice. So as far as his attitude goes, I think there's a strong case that this is uh, persistence in his sour attitude. This is stubbornness. So what the sailors do next is intriguing. First we've analyzed their predicament. Now we're looking at what they're going to do next. Uh, they've gathered their intel. They've asked their questions. They've been told to throw him overboard, but that's not what they do first. Rather than throw Jonah overboard, they try to row to shore to drop him off alive. This makes sense given the... the the storm itself, sails are of no use. In fact, they're dangerous. Uh, sometimes they would destroy the sails, pulling them down. Rowing almost seems like that would be a waste of time too. The things I'm thinking in my brain as I'm reading this is, uh, is clips out of Ben-Hur where they're trying to row themselves out of the trajectory of the oncoming fire and uh, they've been hit and they're taking on water. And I remember watching it when I was about my children's age and it was just a dramatic intense uh not expecting to see what happened to those guys but that's what they try to do they're rowing their way actually as we're told into the storm and the only thing we can speculate is that they are more afraid of mishandling what they do with this man Jonah who's his God's property who's fallen out with him. So the best chance of them getting out of this, having not become involved in whatever's between Jonah and his God, is to drop him off alive and get rid of him. To throw him into the ocean is to surely kill him. So they try to row first. It seems like a worthless effort, but they try as they may. And when they try, they realize it's not going to work. So just because he's on God's wrong side doesn't mean he's not worth something to this God. And we're assuming that they're doing this to, from, to be on the safe side themselves. And it also tells us that they didn't just automatically take Jonah's word for it as first. Okay, so this Hebrew God's runaway says, throw me overboard. And they say... All right, well, let's try to drop him off, but that doesn't work. So they dig in, the Bible tells us, they rode, and the Hebrew for that means digging in. 
so they're digging in against the wind, um, which is a defeating purpose. And again, we're told the storm is getting worse. And this is where my wife was laughing at me earlier when I was running some of these points by her, as we do from time to time. But this is where I think we have a strong case to say that at this point in the story, we're dealing with a Category 3 storm. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, in verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. That's one category. Then verse 11, What shall we do to you? Skip a bit further. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. That's another category. It's category 2. Verse 13, The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. That's a third category. Category three storm in Jonah. Some of you are thinking he's got too much time (laughs) on his hands. Well, I wanted to show you the patterns of threes here. Three uses of hurl. Three different descriptions of the intensity of this storm. So by the author's narration a description of the storm's intensity is heightened for the third time that's that's what's happening and now it's in their face so before they throw this man overboard having done all that they can they begin to pray to a god they don't know they know this man knows that god but he's not very much help so in verse 14 they call out to the lord that's yahweh O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay, lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They are acknowledging this God can do whatever He wants to do. We can't. He's increased the storm time and again. We've rode into it, and there's nothing we can do. So we're acknowledging He's in charge. The Hebrew wording in description of this prayer is to describe a lament. Uh, There's a lot to be said about that. We see this in uh, the the Psalms, some of the Proverbs. But all that to say, this is the way people cry out when they are in danger of death. And what's so telling is that these men are doing such But Jonah is not. He would not cry out. These pagans do. And their request is simply, do not let us perish. As far as what they're determining about what they're about to do with Jonah, when they speak of innocent blood there, you see it in verse 14, do not let us perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. Um, That could mean... They're referring to a a man who has not been tried by a formal uh, due process. He hasn't had a trial. That could be. But most surely it means someone who does not deserve to die. We don't know if this guy's deserving of death as far as his God is concerned. He's our go-between and he's not saying much. So we're praying, Lord, if if this is overcorrecting then spare us from it. We don't know what else to do. They at least know that this God can do what He wants to. They've already said as much. So here the sailors carry out Jonah's instruction. 
from the mouth of the one who's brought all this on them. He remains for them the only voice of God. And with his being thrown overboard, that's the end of the voice of this God. So if, if you're thinking dramatically and you've been reading this story, if you're six or you're 60, it's been building toward this crescendo. And the last verse, verse 17, is often uh, attached to studies of the second chapter. It's almost a paragraph break as if it's a footnote. We'll hang on to that and use it in a moment. But the voice of the Lord has been silenced as soon as Jonah hits the surface of the water. And it's almost as if the narrator wants to bring us in on the suspense, not only of what will happen to Jonah, but before that, the idea is what will happen to these men who petitioned the Lord to be saved or worried about whether or not they're doing the right thing. So the, the, the narrator immediately shows that they've acted rightly in the way that the Lord responds. As soon as he hit the water, the storm immediately clears like you shut it off. And uh, I've, I've watched a storm gather and been amazed at how quickly it can get out of hand. I was talking to someone who just a few weeks ago, 30-some miles offshore, 100 feet of water or so, Wind's doing what it's supposed to, but all of a sudden it drops out, changes directions. This isn't what was forecast. Within 15 minutes, you've got about an eight-foot sea, and you need to get home. Uh, I've been out in my little plastic boat and just watched the wind shift and drop out and amazed at how flat it gets when it's over. I think this is more supernatural than that. It just stops. So God's ability to start and stop a mighty storm at will is enough to take the fear level of these sailors to another level. Here's your third set of threes. If you look at verse 5, the mariners were afraid and cried out to his God. That's when the storm started. Then verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? When they realized he's a runaway. And then verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So not only is the, the fear factor accelerating and escalating, but if you notice in verse 16, they're swapped from verse 10. It's exceedingly afraid in verse 10. It's feared the Lord exceedingly, verse 16. So the object, of their fear has shifted. The object of the fear was the storm. Now when the storm drops out, they're more afraid of who started and stopped the storm. And they promise here to offer sacrifice and make vows. That has to say quite a bit. And remember, this is a, this is a book of contrasts, especially the chapter here. Jonah's fear, remember he said, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of, who made the sea and the dry land. And they're all like, yeah, right, you were sleeping until we woke you up. And still you've not helped as much, you don't even have as much as a prayer, Mr. 
prophet man. So his fear is shallow and hollow. The sailor's fear seems real and has depth. And we're not as readers, again, supposed to worry about what happens to Jonah at this point. The suspense is building for that. But just to make sure we've got verse 16 out of the way before we get to verse 17. They're in that order for a reason. The sailors have petitioned God Almighty. Jonah has desired death. The sailors have desired life. And it seems at this point, both are going to get what they want. I haven't got to verse 17. We're going to find out Jonah doesn't get the death he wants. But these men who've promised and confessed, they get the life they've petitioned Yahweh for. And our storyteller teaches us that the God of Jonah, Jonah the Hebrew, is able to find among strangers the obedience and trust which his own messenger would not give. That's what I think we ought to gather from verse 16 before verse 17. God gets his glory on that boat. It's not coming from Jonah, but he gets his glory. So let's make three points out of this. This is one of the passages where it's quite dramatic, but it might be a little harder than, say, some of the others to answer the question, all right, how do we obey this? Application, that is. I think we've given a good shot as far as how to understand it. It seems we've covered the bases. Here's the first point. They all start with the same phrase. Even though Jonah was sacrificed that's what he was he's thrown overboard there is one greater than Jonah what I mean by that there's a greater sacrifice that this story is pointing to generations later when someone will do that job not in part but in whole so even though Jonah was sacrificed there is one greater than Jonah let me explain to you what I mean by that you'll see how this fits. This is a reference to a, a pattern that's clearly seen here, and that's the pattern of substitution. We, we, we use that as a theological term. It, it helps us understand the gospel. And it's present here in this passage, but it's not a very clear picture. It's a broken, smudged, fingerprinted picture. It's the same way no matter where you're looking. It started in the Garden of Eden and it's going to be fractured and smudged and broken until we get to the Gospels where substitution will be seen crystally clear. But with this case, if we only look at Jonah, the lesson of substitution will have its flaws. Jonah was thrown overboard to take the wrath of the waves so that the sailors wouldn't have to. That's clear. But his attitude in doing so was empty spiritually. Jonah had his problems. This is not something that does not touch each of our lives in, in practically all respects. We should look at our lives through this lens. It will help us live more gospel-centered lives. Some of the best parts of our relationships are full of this type of substitution. At least it should be. Uh, parenting is probably the best illustration I could find. We could just 
take turns as parents. Hey, what does it cost you in the form of sacrifice to bring a child into this world and then get them out of the nest at some point? Quite a bit of sacrificial substitution. Gathered a few of these ideas. I mean, you got to teach them how to talk, right? How do you do that? Most of it's unconsciously. You talk to them. You read to them. It requires time. You build on those lessons. There's the idea of intellectual, social skills, emotional well-being, their patience and maturity. All of those things have to do with the amount of time you spend with them. And it's time you are not spending with yourself or someone else. The scary thing about becoming a parent is realizing that they tend to turn out a lot like you. That's what... It's just an absolute grueling part of being a parent sometimes. Knowing that they're going to bear the same marks of your own brokenness. But the idea here is that in this same regard, without spending time with them, making sacrifices, substituting the best of us for their benefit, they'll grow up with all kinds of problems developmental spiritual problems so it's them or us in that type of thinking we give up freedom now so that they can be freed later this is just the beginning the, the, the examples are infinity uh, keeping promises that you come in time to find out cost you a lot more when you made the promise. Are you going to keep the promise? Well, that's considered sacrificial substitution. Um, forgiving someone who you know, owes you more than just a couple of words you wish they'd take back. Sometimes they owe you some tangible things with repercussions. Forgiving them will cost you. Some of you. For them. How about staying close to someone whose troubles are draining to them and everyone else? You don't think about stuff like that when you're a kid, but when you grow up, you realize that's life. We're all stuck in this thing together, and if it's going to work, there's going to be a lot of chipping in. Uh, That's part of the problem we've got now. I think everybody wants stuff their way from their perspective and uh, demanding that everybody else do to them what they're not really willing to do for the other. It's just a mess. It has to be like this or it won't work at all. So substitutionary sacrifice. Take that and then put it back as a lens over what we're reading. Jonah was thrown overboard for his own sins. but That was not the case with Jesus. That's what's meant by the fact that there's one greater than Jonah. Jesus' sacrifice was infinitely greater. As soon as Jonah hit the water, the wrath of God was stayed as far as the problem on the water with the men in the boat because of Jonah, right? That's one situation. But as soon as Jesus said, it is finished, the cup of God's wrath had been drunk up such that there wasn't a drop left for any of those his sheep that know his voice. 
Jonah's still got troubles. These men still have troubles. They've still got... But when Jesus said it is finished, His sacrificial substitution was once for all. Every bit of the promised wrath from God on sin was soaked up and paid for by the substitutionary sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Jonah is just pointing to something much larger, much more significant. Infinity, really. So, if we read this short minor prophet as a standalone book, you just take it out of the Bible as if it's not connected to any of the rest of it, then really we've just got some moralistic patterns that we might want to, okay, do this, don't do that, this was good, this was all right. And basically it's just a moral lesson. But if we read it together with the rest of the Bible, because of the cross, there is mercy for this wayward prophet. Think of it this way. If God is holy and man is sinful, man has broken God's laws and God has promised to punish them for it, right? And the punishment is death. That's the wage of sin then how can a holy God afford to send a fish to swallow up a wayward, disobedient prophet and save his life from certain drowning and maintain his holy reputation? Unless, of course, he seeks somehow, some way, sometime to pay for it by some other means. You've got to pay for that fish. That's an act of mercy and grace. There's one greater than Jonah. Jonah's not the hero in the Bible. Not even in Jonah. Jesus is the hero, hero of Jonah. And Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. All of them. Jesus is the hero. He's the better sin substitute sacrifice for all of us. And that's what we're seeing here. What, what we're reading about here is the great Savior we'll be singing about here in a moment. That's point number one. Let's look at another. We'll pick up the pace here. Number two, even though Jonah was disobedient. So even though he was sacrificed, even though he was disobedient, God used his words to reveal his glory. That's point number two. Even though Jonah was disobedient, God used his words to reveal his glory, God's glory. So in this book, the person who's trying to escape from Yahweh has never for a single moment escaped his eye or his grasp. Jonah can't get away. A boat doesn't do it. Thrown off the boat doesn't do it. There's a fish coming. But in this very failure, spiritually and morally, of this prophet, God uses Jonah for his service. Because these guys know who Yahweh is by the end of the boat ride. Through a preacher who doesn't even want to preach anymore. It's only through Jonah that the sailors learn that Yahweh is the author of the storm. And it's through this Hebrew voice and no other that God reveals himself. You ever notice that? If, if you understand who God is in the Old Testament, you heard that. Through Hebrew. If God wanted to speak to the world in the Old Testament, He spoke in Hebrew. But then in the New Testament, by the time the Holy Spirit falls and all those guys are talking in tongues, people heard about God in all sorts of languages. And they still are through missions. 
But for a time being, Paul explains it to the Jew first, and then the Greek, and everyone else, to the uttermost parts of the world. So in this place, it's through the voice of the Hebrew. The threat of shipwreck in Jonah is only one of the disasters in the Bible. The Bible's littered with these disasters that befall God's people for their unwillingness to fulfill their obligation to be messengers among strangers and foreigners. It wouldn't get into full swing of things until after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. But you see all through the Old Testament that there's supposed to actually be a light, a witness. Take care of that sojourner. Even with the covenant that God cut with Abraham, you will be a blessing to everyone else. That's how this works. That's not how it's worked in Jonah, and a storm is the result. But even with it, God's still going to get his, 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 his glory. They still know the name of Yahweh. So just to clean up everything here is a good question because commentators differ on this too. Were these sailors actually converted? Did they walk the aisle and sign a card? (laughs) I don't think there was an aisle and I don't think there was a card. But it seems though, even though it's hard to say, there's substance in in their confession Um, you've heard of foxhole conversions. And uh, they make good stories. Bullets are flying. People pretty much promise anything. Uh, Some of that, maybe all of it, fades away when things are fine later. But this was a different case than that. And I think it's clear to see it. They made their vows after the danger had passed. Their vows were made on a flat sea. Not a rough one seems to indicate that they were not seeking God for what He could do for them, but simply for the greatness of who He is in Himself. That's the way you can pitch a lot of church programs. Gather bigger crowds trying to give them what they can get out of God. Sometimes the smaller crowds are the ones that gather just because He's God and He deserves it. But that seems to be what they're looking at here. And then a final point. Even though Jonah was thrown away by the sailors, eventually that's what they decided to do with him after all other options were exhausted. He wasn't thrown away by God. So even though Jonah was thrown away by the sailors, he wasn't thrown away by God. And here's everybody's favorite verse. And you know the fish is only mentioned twice in the book. To to, to get all the attention that the fish gets. This is the first of two verses. The other verse is when he spits him out. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, to the disappointment of millions and millions of people over the ages who've read this story... Scientific details and explanations are not the narrator's concern. He doesn't even give us any any clues as to what species this might be. Fish, whale. Usually we say whale because we think that's the only thing big enough, big enough stomach, and how it would have enough oxygen and all the th- We're not going to concern ourselves with that, at least for today, not in this message. We may later. But what the point we should take away here. God had a fish waiting for his disobedient child. 
This was mercy. It was grace. It was a horrible thing to be swallowed up by a fish. If he even knew it was happening. He might have thought he was dead already. I don't know what that type of experience would entail. But God appointed the fish. Uh, Stephen Davey. Right down the road. Colonial. Reading his commentary. He said. Had I been God. I would have sent a shark. A big one. And I was thinking, I don't know. If it were me and I really wanted to take it out on Jonah, I wouldn't use a big shark. I'd use a lot of little ones. Let him take him apart in a bunch of bites rather than just one big gulp. But that's what we would do. We're vengeful people. God is not. Jonah had given up. God had not. The provision of mercy was paid for by the cross. And just so we're on the same page theologically, God's mercy can't outrun His justice. If there's something withheld in not giving Jonah exactly what he deserved, sending a fish, which is mercy and grace, whatever that was that was withheld was not ultimately withheld or disappeared or forgotten. That was stored up along with all the things that you deserve and I deserve and my children deserve and unleashed on the shoulders of the Son of God on Calvary. Remember when we said this isn't God taking it out on Jonah? God would take this out on His own Son on Calvary. So all through the Bible, no matter where you are, we're reading of a God who comes to earth to endure His own punishment. That is the hero of the Gospels. And that's our portion for the day. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for your narrative record of a backslidden prophet named Jonah. Lord, may we continue what we discussed last week, the exercise of saying even under our breath, I am Jonah. I'm disobedient. I'm selfish. I have a bad attitude. I take what you've given me, which is grace and mercy, truth, and then think I'm qualified to withhold it from others that I determine don't deserve it. Lord, untangle in our hearts and in our heads the, the knots we've, we've put in our understanding of you and in our understanding of how we should treat others. Lord, keep in front of our face the fact that all this mercy and grace that you give us so freely was paid for. There is a sacrifice greater than Jonah. It was your son, Jesus. Keep that in front of us so that we'll be kind and merciful, gracious and humble in front of everyone made in your own image. Thank you for this study, for our time together in church. Bless us each in this room and scattered in homes over our connection. Lord, you've been good to us. You continue to feed us. May it not be said of us that we're giving up on things. You're not giving up on things. So we ask these 
In the strong name of Jesus, amen.